Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, and welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. Today, we are talking about Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, which opened a couple months ago in theaters and is just about to drop on Netflix this week. And joining me in Slate's Brooklyn office to talk about Marriage Story is Samuel Adams, senior editor at Slate and culture writer, film critic extraordinaire. Hey, Sam. Hello. Uh, So I'm feeling both very buzzed to talk about this movie and also a little bit panicked because we both saw it quite a while ago. I have very strong feelings and things to say about this movie, but I may be wandering through the thicket as far as the plot. Yeah, I'm a bit of a plot sieve, which makes, I don't know, makes me an odd person for these spoiler specials, but I I enjoy them and y'all seem to listen. So thanks. I mean, this is not a movie that's really about plot anyway. So, and it is a movie that's all about currents of feeling and about character, really, about two extraordinary performances, I would say, which we'll get to. Um, So maybe we will approach it more in terms of themes and characters than uh, going through the story bit by bit, since we all know from essentially the trailer, which we're just about to hear a bit of, that this is a story about a couple in the midst of a messy divorce. What I love about Nicole, she is a mother who plays, really plays. What I love about Charlie, he loves being a dad. He loves all the things you're supposed to hate, like waking up at night. She knows when to push me and when to leave me alone. He never lets other people keep him from what he wants to do. Dad, you're too far. I know. It's not easy for her to close a cabinet. He's incredibly neat. She's brave. He's brilliant. He's very competitive. So I'll tell Charlie what's happening, and Cassie, you then hand him the envelope. I just get nervous. Can you unserve? What do you mean, like take it back? Charlie and I are getting a divorce, Mom. You can't be friends with him anymore. Gina! Charlie Bird! (laughs) Mom! 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 What? You know, most people in my business, you're just transactions to them. I like to think of you as people. Oh, okay, good. You remind me of myself on my second marriage. Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. Sam, set me straight. They don't actually use Paul McCartney's Maybe I'm Amazed anywhere in this movie, do they? No, no, that's like up-tempo trailer music, not sort of like, you know, depressive, pensive music, which is more what you actually hear in this movie. You've got like a Randy Newman score, and you've got a couple of uh, songs from Stephen Sondheim's company, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but no, uh, like you know, big sort of swing for the fences, like, you know, anthemic, like rock love songs. You put Maybe I'm Amazed in a trailer for a movie about people falling out of love. Um, I think it's just their kind of 
maybe fool people into thinking it's a little less sad than it actually is. And yet they must have paid a lot for those rights. But what are you going to do? It's Netflix. Um, So I actually want to talk later about the fact this is a Netflix release. But first, let's just set up a little what the the story is. So the marriage that we find in Dissolution as the movie begins is between Charlie and Nicole, played by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson. And uh, maybe we should just take up the way we we first meet them, which is really the first thing you hear in the trailer and the happiest, most romantic part of the movie. In other words, you start high and immediately begin the down he'll slide with them. Right. I mean, the way the movie starts is, you know, really sets that all up, which is you hear, you know, there's these very lovely um, kind of monologues by um, Adam Driver's character, Charlie, and Scarlett Johansson's character, Nicole. Charlie reads this little essay called, like, What I Love About Nicole. And then uh, Nicole reads this little essay called, What I Love About Charlie. Um, And it's so great. And this is all them kind of appreciating, you know, the wonderful things that they, you know, feel about each other. And even if you know this is a movie about divorce, you think, well, you know, yeah, but they're still very much in touch with, you know, their own love. Um, And And you also see, we should say at the same time, really the only flashbacks you get in the movie of their right. marriage, right? right? It's during those opening monologues. Yeah. And then it cuts to the two of them sitting in a couples counselor's office. It becomes clear that they've already decided to divorce. They are just trying to work their way through amicably. Um, and it turns out that hearing them read these things aloud was basically kind of the only departure from reality in the movie as well. The first thing we see in this scene is a Nicole Scarlett Johansson's character refusing to read her essay out loud as the counselor's urging her to because she doesn't like what she wrote. Charlie says, well, you know, I like what I wrote. I want to read it. And the counselor says, well, no, it doesn't work unless you both do it. So then they both decide to not do it. And Nicole gets mad and storms out. Oh, so, right. I never thought of that. So what you're really hearing is the composition process in their head of writing the note or something like that. Not a real moment when they actually ever read it. Right. I mean, it, it seems to be a very sort of like straightforward presentational movie in a lot of ways. And if you watch it, I've seen it twice and I've, I've been talking to people about it for a couple months now since I first saw it at Toronto in uh, September. You know, it's very sort of subtly layered in ways that you don't even necessarily notice the, the first or maybe even the second time through. You know, I'm, I realized that I didn't do my usual go round. There's only two of us. We can't quite go around. But but I just wanted to gather the facts first. You loved this movie? Yeah, I, I really do. It moved me a lot the first time I saw it. Um, and I, it really it does kind of sneak up on you and soak into you in, in ways. And I found um, I'll probably talk about this, too. But it, it's something that kind of changes for me the second time you see it as well. And certainly as far as my um, sympathies, my feelings about kind of whose side, you know, the movie is on. I had reservations the first time and then the second time kind of flipped those around. Oh, I so, want to hear about how that shifted. I have yeah. still only seen it one time, but it has really stuck with me. I'm not sure it's going to be on my top 10 list. It's something I'm actually struggling with right now just because there's so many other great movies. Right. And the strengths of this movie, although they're very strong, are conventional strengths, I would right. say. I mean, it's not reinventing the form of cinema in any way. You know, it's a straightforward sort of comedy, tragedy, love story. It's beautifully acted. You know, it proceeds in kind of chronological order through a psychologically realistic universe. These are not bad things, mind you, but I'm just not quite sure that I'm I'm willing to put it up on the level of some of the real achievements in cinema that have happened. It's a harder movie to get excited about, you know, some things like you see something like, you know, Parasite or Portrait of a Lady on Fire and you just go, oh my God, like cinema. Um, And this doesn't give you that same kind of electric feeling. It just, it just kind of like gets into your bones and makes you sad and and thoughtful and maybe pensive uh, sometimes, but uh, it kind of works on you like over over time. I have, may not even make a list this year. It was the kind of thing I would have trouble putting on a list for just that reason. But at the same time, like I, there's very little I can reproach about it. Yeah. 
I will say I think it's my favorite Noah Baumbach film, but I've never been a huge, huge Noah Baumbach fan. I wonder if you could briefly resume what your your feeling about him as a director has been. Like, I would say that this and The Squid and the Whale, which are his two most autobiographical films probably, are my two favorites. And that when he's in the mode of sort of mild social satire and family dysfunction that he's in in a lot of his other movies, Margot at the Wedding, Meyerowitz stories, that I admire those movies without really loving them or remembering them. Right. I mean, I think I'm in the same place as you. I like the ones that are kind of... uh, basically autobiographical or semi-autobiographical movies about divorce. Uh, The ones to me that basically feel like New Yorker short stories, I am not so fond of. Yeah. I mean, Squid in the Whale was very directly about his parents' divorce. and was almost just a a sort of slightly fictionalized autobiography. And with Marriage Story, I mean, I guess we'll never know, right? I mean, his marriage to Jennifer Jason Leigh, which fell apart about five years ago or so, was kept very private. But there are a lot of things that it has in common with this story. They split when they had a child, a much smaller child than the boy in this movie, who is, I think, supposed to be eight, seven or eight. I think their kid was just a baby. And, you know, like Jennifer Jason Leigh, Scarlett Johansson's character is a child of Hollywood, of also an actress who becomes famous for like doing a, a topless scene in a sort of teenage sex comedy when she's a young actress. And ah, Fast Times Connection. Yeah, right. exactly. You know, Adam Driver's character is like an experimental theater director in this. It's not a sort of straight transliteration, but you can certainly draw a lot of lines to, you know, what little we know of Noah Baumbach's actual life right. uh, from this. And that, I think, would maybe account for what I feel like is it's, it's greater emotional authenticity than some of his films. I mean, there's a lot of social satire here, but it tends to be around the divorce proceedings themselves. The two main characters are not really, I would say, objects of of satire. The movie loves them and loves them both and wants us to to give both of their sides a hearing. No, and and a lot of what it becomes about is these two people uh, who, I mean, I think we eventually decide like are not, you know, meant to be together at this point, but did love each other, do, you know, love each other still in some ways being kind of um, fed into this kind of like divorce industrial complex, um, both, you know, the lawyers and the, and the judicial system and surfacing all these kind of emotions that they kept buried during their marriage, which is why it fell apart. But at the same time, really being put at odds with each other in ways that don't seem necessarily uh, like necessary or helpful. Yeah, they're both performers, but it's like they're being cast in a in a play or a movie that they, they don't want to be in, right? right? They're being turned into each other's antagonists when they start the beginning swearing that they're going to have this amicable split. So the way their split gets so unamicable so quickly is in part because Nicole moves to Los Angeles and she does that because she gets a part in a TV show. So there's also this conflict between the two of them, which I think is really nicely subtly not underscored in the movie between the higher brow art that he's creating in New York and that they created together during the years of their marriage and whatever it is, the show that she's going to do, which we never learn. I don't think the title of or much about what it's about, but it's some kind of sci-fi fantasy, right? Yeah, it just, it reminds me a little bit of the, uh, like the sci-fi movie that like Chloe Grace Moretz is shooting in um, Clouds of Sils Marie or something. It's It's sort of like a parody of like dumb Hollywood stuff from a director who's never like done Hollywood stuff and doesn't seem like very familiar with it. So it's very kind of like denatured and abstract, but it's something about her like kind of being in like a mother to an alien baby or like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the view of Hollywood is a little bit jaundiced, but also is just so glancing. The movie is really not that interested in the process of being a Hollywood star or having been a Hollywood star or that much about her career. And it's something that I might fault this movie with if I thought it through more. It didn't really bother me at the time, but I feel like the movie understands and cares more about his career than about hers. It may care about them both equally as people and as partners in this dissolving partnership, but 
We understand more about Charlie's art, why he wants to stay in New York and make it, what the company is like and what his relationships with people in the company, including a very charming Wallace Shawn is one of his, his uh, you know, studio of actors, what that's like. And we don't really know anything about why she wants to move to L.A. except that her family's there, right? Right from the beginning, we get these sort of dueling monologues. It is a movie kind of about and embedded with points of view. It's, you know, written and directed by a man. It certainly felt to me like my one complaint with it the first time was I felt like it was really kind of, you know, slanted in favor of Charlie, who has all these very sort of relatable, like understandable desires. Like they live in New York. He wants to stay in New York. You know, their kid has been raised in New York. He wants to keep their kid in New York. And all of a sudden, here's Nicole saying like, I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to take our kid to LA. I'm going to like put our kid in school in LA. And then like just, kind of steal him away and like make you move there too. Um, And it isn't really until the end of the movie that it starts to get kind of more into the idea that um, there had always been this sort of understanding between them or discussions between them about, well, maybe we'll try living in LA because Nicole Scarlett Johansson's character is like from there originally. She has family there. Um, She kind of gave up this movie career to go and work with Charlie's theater company in New York. And it's only kind of having gotten to that point in the movie and then gone back and watched it again. Then the second time through, I was like, oh, no, actually, like, Nicole was right, like, the whole time. And I talked to a number of other people. Like, I kind of checked this. And a lot of other people that I've talked to had the same experience. So I don't know if I could say that it's sort of deliberately designed to go one way the first time and another way the second time. But I think that that is kind of an available reading of it and speaks to some of that kind of complexity that I was talking about, that it turns out to be kind of richer than it seems at first. Right. I mean, you don't really get even a sense of who ended the marriage, right? Since we don't get a scene of them saying, let's break up now. We, we first meet them when that's already been said and they've made an appointment with a mediator, so it's gotten that far. But you imagine that it was her that said, let's break up. Right. I mean, you do find out that he cheated on her with, I think, like the stage manager from their like theater company, some sort of crew person. Really, you kind of find out about that after it's over and they're already apart. We certainly don't see like the moment that she finds out. It doesn't really underline the fact that this is, you know, you get all these kind of wonderful scenes of, oh, I love Charlie and I love his theater company because it's like a family. We're all included. And then but doesn't really get to the part where it's like, oh, you cheated on me with like a member of our family and like what a deeper betrayal that would be. So it kind of, you know, glosses over that a little bit. We're already past the rupture when the movie starts. Um, You know, a lot of it is stuff that we kind of have to piece together or like figure out uh, through the process as we're kind of moving through, I I guess it takes place over about a year or something like that. I'm not sure it's like Almost exactly a year because we have two Halloweens within the movie, right? right? right, The horrible Halloween and then the the not so bad Halloween. Right. Since you're saying this is all a movie about point of view and shifting points of view, I'm curious what you make of the long scene that Scarlett Johansson has with with Laura Dern, who becomes her lawyer in LA, her divorce lawyer. Um, There's this long moment. I think of it as one take. At the very least, it's a few long connected takes of... um, of Scarlett Johansson just telling her story, how they broke up, what the narrative is, the raw narrative that this lawyer, Laura Dern, is going to shape into something that can be argued in a courtroom to try to get custody of Henry, their son. And I was somewhat unclear throughout that scene on the balance between social satire and and sincere drama, right? I mean, certainly we're supposed to believe Scarlett Johansson's character. She's not misrepresenting 
or or fronting in any way. But there's also sort of a satire of this touchy-feely talk that the Laura Dern character is using to draw this story out and to get more details that she will eventually, as we'll see, weaponize in the courtroom against Charlie. And I just wondered what you thought that scene's balance of, you know, sort of wanting you to love and care for Scarlett Johansson and care about hearing her truth, but also be aware of the manipulation that's that's turning that truth into something else, even as she tells it. Right. I mean, Laura, Laura Dern is playing this... Um kind of high-powered, very slick, um, kind of personable Hollywood divorce attorney who's apparently based on a real uh, divorce attorney who I think represented uh, Jennifer Jason Lee in her divorce from Noah Baumbach. Um, and so she's a bit of a shark, but she also does this thing where she just takes Nicole into her office and says, you know, like, sit down and, and kind of tell me about this. And there is this big, long take where you know, Scarlett Johansson is kind of you know moving around the office and she, I think she gets like tea at one point and is also like delivering this monologue. And I mean, that's right. She, she, that's part of the satire is that she presents her with this very elaborate set of pastries that look like something that you'd be served in kind of like an English tea room or something. Right. I and mean, he, it's a place it's 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 a place with all the accoutrements, put it that way. Yes. But this very kind of meaningful stuff comes out where she says, you know, we always talked about moving to L.A. and we kind of never we never sort of set a date, you know, but it was just something we always talked about. And never did. And that you get a real sense of that that has kind of became her position in the marriage, that she was the one who had these desires that were discussed and acknowledged, but never acted upon. And how Charlie would just kind of win those battles through inertia. He wouldn't say no. He would just never say yes. I think she says at one point, I just felt like I was getting smaller in in the marriage. And you and you realize rather than the therapist, the male therapist at the beginning of the movie, just being like, tell me what you love about your husband, that for Laura Dern to kind of give her this more open-ended prompt um, spills forth this whole thing. And you start to really see, A, that they're not getting back together for sure. Um, and B, that this is someone who has really kind of starved off part of herself within this marriage and, and is really kind of only just now reconnecting with it. Yeah, and the way Johansson acts it in that scene, which is really admirable, is that it's almost like she's discovering the truth for herself as she tells it, right? right? That some of those things she's never really maybe admitted even to herself, how powerless and passive she felt in their relationship. And I mean, I think there are hopefully not you know, too many left, but I mean, I think there are still people who kind of underestimate Scarlett Johansson as an actress. And I think this is a really good movie too. And that's, this is a great scene in particular to kind of turn them around. Well, one on thing that. I thought in that scene and in many scenes in this movie is that she doesn't get that many roles where she gets to play a normal vulnerable human mortal, you know? I mean, she used to, but now she's well, I mean, she is incredible in her, for example, but but there she's not a human mortal. She's this kind of otherworldly machine voice that's kind of striving to become human. Uh, obviously, in the Avengers universes, she's you know, doesn't exactly she's, she's have superpowers. Black but, Widow, she's like yeah. the alien and under the skin. She's like the superhuman in Lucy, the kind of cyborg, whatever in Ghost in the Shell. Yeah, she's played a lot of kind of, you know, superhuman or post-human, yes. yeah. And and so one thing I realized a lot in this movie, especially when she's walking around with Adam Driver and Laura Dern, who are both very tall, is that she's tiny, right? I mean, she's just this very small person. And she, because she always plays someone with so much power or somebody from some alien dimension or whatever, you kind of think of Scarlett Johansson as this, you know, fembot or something like that. And it was it was really great to see her playing a normal human mortal extremely well. Yeah, and she's got like kind of, you know, short, um, kind of shaggy hair in this. The very first thing we see in, in the movie, and I sort of forgot this, but is this almost sort of silent film like Iris out on her face in what we will see like quite a bit later is this theater production of I think it's uh, Electra, which is the last thing that she and Charlie are going to end up doing off Broadway. And then it, it then transfers to Broadway, but she doesn't go with it because she goes to LA to shoot her pilot. Um, but we see her in this, you know, sort of classic like 
you know, black kind of mock turtleneck and, and short hair. And she just seems very fragile and, and exposed in a way that she is often not in, I mean, not kind of called upon to be in movies. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, since we've covered Laura Dern and Scarlett Johansson's relationship as lawyer and client, um, what about Charlie and his two lawyers? You want to take us through his, his journey through uh, divorce law? First, Charlie thinks he's going to do it without a lawyer because they're just friends and they're going to do this amicably. And then he finds out that Nicole has up and up and hired this lawyer. Um, and so he needs to right away. Laura Dern calls him and says, well, hey, you remember that complaint that we sent you that you kind of ignored? Because again, this is like what he does. Um, you have 30 days to respond to it. And it's been like 27 or something. And if you don't, um, we're just going to take everything that we ask for in that. You need to come to LA and get a lawyer like yesterday. So he goes to LA is sort of frantically running around. The first person he stops to see is, is Ray Liotta, who's this very aggressive kind of, you know, sharky, doggy dog divorce lawyer, kind of the alpha male, you know, equivalent of Laura Dern's character. And he basically says, like, look, we're just going to we're just going to come back at them as hard as they came at us. You're not going to like me when this is all over, but, you know, we're going to win. And Adam Driver says, like, nah, like, I don't want to do that. So then he goes and after he has to go, to go all over town to find a lawyer, um, because it, it turns out, I guess this is this might be a specific L.A., California thing. But uh, Nicole has gone around and consulted with like a dozen lawyers around town, which then poisons the well. Uh, he can't use them because th- she's already discussed their I marriage with them. I didn't know about that part of divorce law either. And it yeah. seems like there must be some real chicanery going on in, in that department. I also wonder if there's some sort of subtweet of JJL there, Jennifer Jason Lee. I can't help it. I know that I should be above bringing his own story into this. But that thing of spoiling the field of divorce lawyers is really cold. No, I mean, if you're, you know, Noah Baumbach, I mean, you've been through it and you probably also know, you know, quite a lot of of well-heeled, you know, people with a lot of resources who've been through their own sort of high-powered divorces and have, you know, the money and the time to just like spend a week going around visiting divorce lawyers so that their spouse can't get to them. The people who were kind of put off by Noah Baumbach's movies just being about like privileged white people. This is not a movie for you, I don't think. I mean, this is absolutely who these people are. The characters are not as successful as Noah Baumbach and, and Jennifer Jason Lee. I mean, they're the experimental theater director and and uh, and a famous you know, mostly theater actors at this point. But I mean, they're not you and I. These circumstances are somewhat alien, but the kind of emotional beats of what they're going through, I think, will be very either familiar from experience or kind of from, I don't know, like intrusive thoughts about like what might happen if your marriage went to shit. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bougie movie. There's no way around it. But I will say that the privilege gets checked in small ways by that social satire I was talking about. It happens a little bit more in relation to the law scenes than, you know, just in in the depiction of their private lives. 
For example, that moment when they're having, I think it's their first court hearing, and the judge tries to hurry them along, saying there's some people with fewer resources who are waiting to be heard behind you, and you see this bank of, of people who are clearly not, you know, um, professional TV stars and theater directors who are just regular people waiting to hear their divorce court heard. Right, absolutely. And Charlie ends up with, you know, a, a somewhat cheaper, if not not exactly bargain basement, but he ends up with this kind of you know, shuffling nice guy of a recently converted to divorce lawyer played by Alan Alda, um, who's, you know, immensely lovable in this role. But you also have the senses that he, Charlie's just going to get screwed as long as he relies on him. So he tries to play nice um, and that uh, does not work out to his advantage. So at a yeah. certain point, this movie, you know, it's, it's I think, two hours and 15 minutes long. Like there's a lot packed into it, but it also leaves a lot out. And one of the things that it does is, for example, there's some there's clearly a moment when Charlie goes with Alan Alda and then dumps him and goes back to Ray Liotta. And you don't see that. It's just the next time he shows up in court with a lawyer, there's Ray Liotta. Yeah, I wonder if that was a scene that was written and then not put in or filmed and then cut, because it does seem odd that you don't see Alan Alda's a pretty major character while he's in the movie, right? And uh, and then he disappears very quickly. Maybe he just couldn't stand to film the heartbreak of someone (laughs) rejecting Alan Alda. Yeah. But then, sure enough, the next time you see him, he has pitted um, his his shark lawyer against her shark lawyer. Yes. And that's, you know, when you really get a sense of kind of the ugliness involved, because there's a moment when uh, Charlie's coming out to, to visit Nicole. Um, they're kind of putting their kid together, sort of having a nice, you know, moment of kind of sharing bedtime. And she's saying, oh, you know, I think I had a glass of wine too much. Um, you know, maybe you should do bedtime or whatever. I feel a little, you know, lightheaded or something. And then... Um, the next time they're in court and their lawyers are going back and forth and Ray Liotta saying, well, you know, the, Nicole, like, you know, getting drunk around their kid and expressed concern to her husband that she might, you know, like injure their child because of her inebriation. And it's, you know, this is just like a sort of human moment between them. And then it has just been weaponized in yeah. court. And that's another moment where you never saw charlie tell his lawyer that right you have to just imagine all the conversations the many conversations they had that were woven into that narrative which the the lawyers consciously talk about as you know their narrative and their story and And, their way of and make up your mind as to whether that was just like kind of an idle thing that he told him or whether ray liotta was like i need dirt like what can i use and charlie knowingly says like hey she said this thing about drinking too much and there's some equivalence on the other side too right you've re-seen it more recently than i but i think there's also some information that charlie offers up more or less innocently that gets weaponized against him well right and all, all this stuff about um i mean he's put in this real bind because he keeps saying we're a new york family um and then you know he has this issue where if he doesn't get a place in LA to stay then he's then he's kind of abandoning his child and and his wife's going to get custody but if he lets go of his place in New York then he's admitting that he's moved to LA and then he'll never get to take his kid back to New York um and you know he's a theater director he can't afford to like have you know apartments in two of the most expensive cities in the country simultaneously but he's kind of over a barrel he can't not have one or the other it's sort of hard to imagine how he is managing his life. The part yeah. of me that's really identified with overbooked, disorganized people really sympathized with that part of the movie where he's racing around L.A. with a, a play apparently being put on in his absence as the director in New York. And I don't know who's renting his apartment or what's going on. But um, that whole section where he rents that depressing beige apartment, which, by the way, is a triumph of location scouting yeah. or set building, whichever it is, that just so perfectly communicates the genericness of an apartment that you get when you were miserable and you don't want to live there. Um, But that whole period of the movie gives you this sense of, you know, this invisible life that you don't see the New York life just spinning out of control. 
Right. And one of the recurring elements in this movie, which is, is you know, a thing that I kind of rolled my eyes at a, a little bit, especially because it feels very kind of Woody Allen-y. There's a lot of L.A. versus New York talk in this, always weighted towards New York. Um, but there is kind of a running gag where every time someone in L.A. talks about, you know, how great it is to live there, the only thing they ever say is, oh, the space. There's, you know, just so much space. Um, and so Charlie moves into this apartment. And yeah, there is a lot of space, but it's also completely like beige and featureless. There's like going to be this sort of social worker to come visit his place to see if he's providing like a decent environment for his kid. And he, he ends up kind of like Skyping with the set designer from his theater company to kind of outfit this place in a way that makes it look, you know, hospitable and uh social worker approved, I guess. I think to me, that's one of the bravura sequences in the movie when the social worker comes to observe his parenting in that in that depressing beige apartment, because it's so understated. I mean, she could be so much more of a, of a villain than she is, or she could be some sort of comically over the top, uh, you know, grim guardian type. But she's just this very uh, expressionless bureaucrat who communicates absolutely nothing during her evening with him, which Adam Driver plays the comedy in this so well, the very dark comedy in it. Just it drives him into this kind of self-destructive frenzy of doing, making himself look worse and worse as a parent the more he tries to make himself look good. Right. And that character of the the social worker is kind of this, I mean, almost like the Saturday Night Live character is really sort of mousy, glum, like lower register voice. Like she's just like, you know, moving through rubber cement at every step. His frenzy is that much more pronounced because it's like being played off her. Yeah. The end of that scene where he gashes his own arm <laughs> for essentially no reason, trying to demonstrate to her that he is a great parent. I mean, it was just that was that was kind of Baumbach comedy at its best. You know, the way that he can take people's own worst impulses and kind of self-sabotaging behaviors and turn them into comedy. Right. And that's one of the bits, too, that that watching it again, you sort of see subtle references to it. Everyone's he has this thing that he calls like a knife trick where he carries basically this sort of miniature box cutter on a keychain. A friend of mine was like, if he's flying back and forth from L.A. to New York, like every week and presumably not checking a bag. How is he getting a miniature box cutter with him? But uh, but he does this thing where he sort of pretends to, you know, slit his wrist and then, you know, like retracts the blade at the last minute. And, and um, he's like, oh, you know, and his, so his son says, hey, show the social worker the knife trick. And he's like, no, that's not a, a like a dinnertime thing. In fact, it's not an anytime thing, but he pushes. And so he tries to show it to her and he fails to retract the blade and like actually just... Uh, almost <laughs> like, like cuts cuts his arm open. Um, which but then is, pretending everything's fine yes. as he's gushing blood everywhere. I just yes. I loved it. But if you go if you go back and and watch like the the phone conversation where Laura Dern calls him up and is like, "You're out of time. Like you need to hire a lawyer because in you know in three days you're gonna your thirty days is up and we're just gonna take whatever we want." Um, he's in the stairwell at his theater company and he, you see him like playing with the knife in that. See, it seems like a little tick at that point, but once you know where that's going to pay off, like it adds a kind of more resonance to that scene. Ah, more reason to see it again. Yeah. yeah. And I, I love the way that every detail does get picked up again. There's almost a doubling structure to it. It contains two Halloweens, right? Two different Halloween celebrations. A lot of things that happen in this movie happen twice, you know, once horrible, once bearable or or vice versa. Right. I mean, I, one example of that might be the huge fight, the, the giant operatic fight that they have in the in the depressing beige apartment, which is almost like... The, uh, the the equal and opposite reaction to that opening loving montage of seeing their happy life together. Because once again, as with the mediator, you see them going into a situation with all the best intentions, her dropping by his house for them to have this light conversation about, you know, what's it you need to sign these papers? What's the thing that she's trying to make happen when she comes to his apartment? I think that's then? right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and so. it just so quickly but very believably devolves into this this 
operatic screaming fight. Yeah, and Adam Driver's performance in that scene, I mean, is particularly, you know, he takes it so much farther than, I mean, yes, he gets mad and he like punches the hole in a wall and we've all, you know, sort of seen like that kind of, you know, male anger like expressed on film. And they're very careful to sort of block it so that he is like, turning away at away from Scarlett Johansson, like punching the wall. So there's no like physical threat to her there. Um, and, but then he just starts like screaming at her and he's, and he's saying, you know, like, Oh, I, you know, I, I, sometimes I just wish that you would get an illness and die. Um, and his face just like goes red. His words are just coming out of him in a way that just, you know, he's just totally out of control. And then he just ends up on his knees sobbing. Um, and she, I mean, he just said this very, like a whole string of like really horrible things to her. Um, but she just kind of touches his shoulder to comfort him. And it's, you know, people less sympathetically inclined might, you know, read that scene a different way. But for me, I mean, the way it plays is, you know, these are two people who know each other really well. And she knows, A, that he doesn't mean that, but B, also how upset and kind of at his wits end he would have to be to talk to her like that. And she is I kind of giving and sympathetic enough person to, to see his pain rather than her, um, you know, offense or, or hurt, you know, and to, and to reach out to him that, and it's a really, um, you know, I think a kind of touching and profound moment and kind of, you know, when this movie's at its best. Yeah. Just really a scene where both of them are at their best as actors, precisely because, like you say, they're able to modulate these extreme emotions with also still recognizing each other and each other's past. And I think that's also the scene where she uses this endearment. She calls him honey in the middle, maybe not the middle, but somewhere near the beginning of the ramping up of their fight, you know, and that's just another kind of trace. I don't even know if we've heard her call him that earlier in the movie, but it's one of these rare glimpses you get into this earlier time when they were happy and it makes it all the more painful how how they're falling apart. Right. And I think one of the questions the movie is sort of asking or, or attention in a lot of the scenes is how much of that interaction between them is just kind of muscle memory. You know, is this actually, do they actually still love each other or, is, or are they just people who are getting used to dealing with each other in a different way and just kind of, it's the vestiges of this thing that is uh, kind of dying off. And I think it's a real, and, and I imagine if you go through that process, like that's a lot of what you are, are going to be wondering for a while. Is, I mean, are you finding a new way to interact with and, and love and respect each other and at least, you know, deal amicably with each other? Or are you just kind of living off the fumes of what was there before until they run out? Yeah. I mean, I think at that point in the movie, you might say it's the latter. But I would say by the end, I mean, not to ship Charlie and Nicole too hard, but yeah. I would say that the end that I, I think that they still have love for each other when she comes and overhears him reading with Henry, you know, the letter that he finds, the letter from the beginning about about his good qualities that she never read aloud. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a moment of tenderness there where you can imagine a future for them that would be affectionate yet distant. Right. And the, one of the things that comes out in this opening monologue is Nicole says one of the things she loves about Charlie is that he's, I mean, it's in both of theirs, I guess, but that, you know, that she loves that he's kind of the organized one. She's kind of, you know, she's sort of passionate and messy and he's the one who is better at you know just like you know doing dishes but also just organizing things and then kind of the last real beat in the, you get in the movie is she and her new boyfriend are kind of going off to to dinner and her, and her family we haven't really talked about yet are going off to dinner on halloween their son's tired so charlie says like look i'll take him home and then she bends down to kind of tie his shoelace and then the, he and his son kind of walk off into the sunset and just that little moment of care also the sense that you know, he's the disorganized one now and she is able to kind of step up and, and 
you know, pull him together in just this very little symbolic way is, is, um, I think very nice. I mean, again, I know people who have seen that and been like, like that's, that's pretty, you know, cloying or, or on the nose, but I think you've kind of been through enough woe at that point in, in the film to feel like you've earned a little sap. Right. I mean, if you get that far in the movie and you don't care at all about the two of them being okay with each other, then I just feel like you're watching the wrong movie. <laughs> or, or it's just failed and there's nothing to save it at that point for you. Yeah. Let's talk about her family a little bit. And that can be a way of getting into Sondheim and music, which I want to talk to you about, because I know you're writing about that for yep. Slate. Um, but her family is this charming and important, I think, part of, of the, the backstory. She's the only one who really gets a family as a backstory. We don't meet any members of his family or learn about the place that he came from. There's just a mention of alcohol and violence in his background, in the sense that he was from Indiana and he moved to New York on his own and doesn't you know, speak to his parents. Right. All. And implied there, and maybe even possibly stated there, I think, is that her family has become a kind of surrogate family for him. Right. I mean, it's kind of a running gag, actually, like how much her mother, who's played by Julie Haggerty, loves Charlie. And that, in fact, it's even when they're getting divorced, she's kind of back channeling and, and talking to him just because she, like, is so fond of him. Seems in some ways more fond of him than her own daughter. Right. She calls him Charlie Bird. She has yeah. a nickname for him. They have like special hugs and a secret language. Also, Merritt Weaver, who plays her sister, has a small but very charming part as her, her nervous Nelly sister, uh, seems to be very attached to Charlie. And so when he walks into the house, there's this sense that everything's fine and he's home and, and that Nicole is then alienated by that very acceptance that her family extends to him. Right. So as we mentioned early on, one of the few things that there is to spoil about this movie is the two musical performances near the end. They're so unexpected. I mean, Charlie and Nicole are not musical theater people. They're regular avant-garde, straight drama people. And uh, we never hear them talk about musicals or about Sondheim. And then yet, at this moment, that's almost parallel cut. It's not parallel cut, but the two scenes are almost back to back, right? We see both of them separately on separate coasts, each perform a Sondheim song from the same musical company. And uh, it's never explained why those two songs, why did they choose them? What's their background with them or anything like that? But I feel like it's such a rich, dramatic moment in which, again, we can read so much backstory. But tell me about the two songs and how they appear in the movie, what you think they're doing. Well, the first one we see, I mean, these kind of came into the film, according to Noah Baumbach, kind of in reverse order. But the first one we see is um, they're just kind of having a party at Nicole's mom's house. And she and her mom and her sister are performing this trio from company called You Could Drive a Person Crazy. And it's basically kind of a breakup song. It's about uh, this female character kind of coming to a parting of the ways with character Bobby, who's kind of the central figure in company. He's this perpetually single man, all of whose friends are married, telling him that he's got to get married while at the same time using him to kind of express all the dissatisfactions in their own marriages. Um, and this is her kind of breaking up with him. This is the last the kicker to the song is Bobby is my hobby and I'm giving it up. Uh, so it's a, you know, playful, you know, song of, of liberation, but it also does end with her kind of coming to the decision to kick Bobby to the curb. And uh, it, it, we sort of read at that point that Bobby is an analog for Charlie. Uh, and that gets, underlined very much so in the subsequent scene where is it the very next scene or is there something in between i'm not sure it's it's soon after at least i mean they're very much paralleled um, and very near the end of the movie in the yes. last 20 15 minutes yeah it's like the closing of it's charlie's kind of leaving new york party he's getting together with his old all his old theater buddies uh they go to this piano bar and charlie just kind of I mean, he must have set it up, but he just starts singing like from his seat, um, being alive, which is kind of the you know climactic, uh, most you know emotional, memorable song from Company, which is about um, in the case of 
the show is about Bobby, you know, deciding that he wants to take the chances and to the risks that a romantic relationship and a, and a marriage entails and um, goes through all these great sort of, you know, conflicting emotions and really embracing all of them, not just the good ones, but realizing that the bad ones are kind of lumped into that. He's singing it at the end of a relationship rather than as a prelude to the beginning of one. Um, but it's again, you know, another one of these scenes that's done in a single take, Adam Driver's kind of, you know, up and back to the microphone and back to his seat, um, you know, singing the song for real. Um, turns out he's actually, you know, quite a good It's um, a really singer. vocally demanding song. I mean, I was yeah. blown away by his performance of that song because not only does it rise completely naturally out of this non-musical situation um, and and express, you know, exactly where his character is at in the movie, but he actually has vocal chops and he sings really well. Right. I mean, one of the things um, Noah Baumbach said after the movie premiered in Toronto is that he and Adam Driver, you know, they're uh, friends. Adam Driver has been in, he was in um, Bombax movie While We're Young. And uh, Francis Hott. Yeah, and Francis have known each other for, for years. Um, they apparently share, maybe probably with Greta Gerwig, who used um, uh, Merrily We Roll Along as a touchstone in her movie Lady Bird. They apparently all sort of share a fondness for Sondheim. So he said that he and Adam Driver would just sit around and like talk about Stephen Sondheim shows for hours. And that... Maybe even before he had the idea for Marriage Story, he was just like, I want to do a movie that you sing uh, Being Alive from Company in. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, in a way, the movie was kind of built around that scene from the beginning. And then I think You Can Drive a Person Crazy just came in kind of opportunistically as a neat um, kind of bookend to it. Another, you know, play on the sort of dual perspectives. It's a huge emotional moment in the movie. It is arguably like, borrowing, I mean, if you know company at all, or even if you're just moved by the song, it is borrowing a lot of emotions from that. Um, but they do fit into and play into the film really well as well. So it just kind of acts as this amplifying chamber for everything that's gone on up to that point. Yeah. And also a perfect contrast with the way her song is performed, which is in in company, right? I right. mean, it's in, in this social setting. It's kind of a cute little performance that she worked up with her mom and sister. It points to how different the world that she's moving into is from his world, right? right. I mean, hers is this crowded, busy world of, of women and a child in the house. And he, it's not that he's going to be completely alone. He does get partial custody at the end, but um, but he's moving into this world of, of loneliness. And so the, the contrast is so starkly pointed up beautifully by those two songs. And I just loved also that there's no backstory about, oh, the two of them always loved Sondheim. I mean, right. It would have been easy to throw in some memory of the two of them going to a show or singing the songs together or something like that. But you simply have to infer that these two married couples separated by a continent don't know that the other person is choosing a song from the same musical to perform. And what's great about the way Adam Driver does it, too, is that he's not just singing the song. He's doing all the kind of interpolated dialogue that's part of it as well, and not just doing the dialogue, but doing it very you know, pronouncedly in the voices of the actors from the original cast recording. I think even if you don't know the album, you can tell that's what he's doing because he's just sort of talking out of the side of his mouth and putting on this kind of nasal Elaine Stritch voice. And, you know, this is a song sung by a person who listened to company a million times in his bedroom when he was a teenager. You can tell that this is just, you know, a song, an album that he knows inside out, probably had something to do with him wanting to get into the theater in the first place. And he's performing it for his, you know, theater company that he's leaving behind. Um, and it's just, you know, brings so much kind of meaning into that scene. 
Yeah, and it could be so easy when you say it that way that he's doing the voices from the original cast album, which I didn't know. It sounds like it could be so precious and overthought. And I think it really takes an actor like Adam Driver. Well, there really isn't any actor like Adam Driver right now. Maybe there used to be in like Brando's day or something. But it takes somebody with that kind of... um, I don't know, that, that quality that he has of always having an off-screen life that's just as interesting or more interesting than what he's living on screen. I mean, Adam Driver always seems like that to me, even back to the days of Girls and first seeing him on TV, right. that his acting gestures toward this rich inner life that you're not going to necessarily get access to. Right, because he also sort of seems like someone whose mind is always just like a little bit somewhere else. Um, you know, like he's very involved in the scene and the character, but you also feel like he could be sort of you know, doing quadratic equations or like making a grocery list in the back of his head, even as he's like in the middle of this scene, like he's just always a little bit not there. And that's sort of written into his character as well, right? I mean, that he is this um, theater director who's who's great when he's on, when he's directing and he's plugged into his theater. That's kind of established at the beginning, that he's sort of his most true self when he's with this group of performers and trying to c- collaborate and create something together. But in the real world, in his marriage and in his relationship to the law and to the you know social worker who comes to his house, in all those scenarios, he, he feels odd and out of place and doesn't seem to fit in. And that is also perfect for just, I'm not sure if it's the person that Adam Driver is or the kind of characters he plays. But again, it just it just works. Right. And someone who is kind of we're sort of told a little bit and mostly kind of left to infer, but someone who kind of, you know, grew up without, you know, a solid kind of, you know, home family structure and has really, you know, built it for himself in this marriage and is is very kind of good and, and competent within that structure. But you take it away and he's kind of flailing again. And you see him, you know, very confidently making dinner. Um, you know, he apparently is the one who does most of the cooking at home and, you know, very confidently doing that um, in those kind of opening monologue sequences. But then when he tries to do it with the social worker in L.A., he's just he's totally like at odds. He ends up like you know, almost like, you know, fatally slitting his own wrists by accident. And he's just, you know, and he ends up at the end of that scene, just kind of lying down on the floor in the kitchen with like paper towels stuffed into this (laughs) hole in his arm. I love that he's still trying to front with the kid. It's just so dark. I was, I think the only person on my screening who was rolling on the floor laughing in that slit wrist scene. But the moment that the kid comes in to get something and he just sort of covers the blood with his body and says, I'm fine. I'm just resting. Yeah. I'm just lying down on the floor of the kitchen as one does. Yeah. So let's bring it on home to the ending. So we've had the back-to-back Sondheim performances. Part of what the Sondheim performances mean is that we know where they are now, right? I mean, I feel like that's that's a part of the movie where they both sort of land in the place that they're going to be at the end. And even though his singing shows that he's damaged and messed up, he's also sort of okay bidding goodbye to his New York life. She seems thoroughly ensconced in her life and actually pretty happy by the end. She even finds a new boyfriend who we learn nothing about, really, except that he's there on the last Halloween and he seems to be part into her family now in the way Charlie used to be. Yeah, he's like nice and cute and nothing else. He's he's no Adam Driver, I'll put it that way. Um, So after we see them settled into their Sondheim (laughs) subject positions, how do we see them through to the end? What's the last we see of Nicole and Charlie? Again, this is something we're told about that happened rather than seeing it happening, but we get a sense. um, There's like a a party at at Nicole's and Laura Dern's character says, well, you know, since Charlie agreed to move to L.A., um, then, you know, you don't really need me anymore. Everything's settled. And it's like, he he did? Like, when did that happen? It's just just another one of those things that, like, the movie kind of jumps over. But he is – Charlie's got a place in L.A. He's taken a residency at an L.A. theater, which we know is something that he was offered before and turned down. Um, without, you know, sort of fully uh, consulting with with Nicole. Um, So he's making a place for himself on the West Coast. Still seems to be alone, um, but is 
you know, putting down roots, at least kind of reconciled to the fact that like, this is where his ex-wife and his son live. And if he wants to be part of either of their lives, he's going to have to, you know, at least have like a pretty substantial footprint there. I hope you got a better apartment. (laughs) You know, it's, it's a process. Um, yeah. And she seems to be, I mean, I mean, Nicole has been kind of growing through the whole movie. Like she's really the one, her period of being stymied were, you know, is kind of before the movie starts and she is just kind of really expanding in a way that you get a sense that she really kind of wasn't allowed to, or didn't allow herself to in the marriage. So she's been, isn't she even Emmy nominated? Isn't that something that that they say as he's coming into the house? Yeah. Well, and she's Emmy nominated, not for acting, but for directing. Like he assumes that it's for directing and she's like, well, actually I, you know, I directed an episode. It's like, she's like, Oh, so now I know what you do. And that's sort of like, Oh, right. She doesn't have to be like the actress who's directed by the director. She can just direct. I can't help but think of that as a Gerwig moment, right? I, you are certainly free to read it. And uh, and then it's Halloween again, right? We saw them have this horrible Halloween, which we haven't really talked about, but the one where he forces the kid to go out trick or treating a second time, and they have a fight about what costume he'll wear. All of that stuff; those those petty disagreements felt so real to me in that first bad Halloween. But they're not that pointed up. But once again, with this this doubling structure I was talking about, Halloween comes back, and this time it's okay. Yeah, they've sort of reconciled. In the first one, they are. Uh, I think we. this is the moment where we find out that um, Nicole has found out belatedly about the affair. She, like, hacked into Charlie's emails, which Ray Liotta later reminds a judge is actually a federal crime. Um, but she's hacked into his emails, found these back and forth with him, and the stage manager realizes that, um, you know, he was cheating on her. Um, so I guess that that affair didn't actually play into the divorce because she finds out about it later. But there's this kind of underlying hostility that we don't quite understand the origins of at first, but... Uh, Charlie has come out from New York to trick or treat with her son. He got the special costume made by his you know, costume designer from his theater company. Who was the lover, right? I think the costume designer that made the costume was, in fact, the one he cheated. Yeah, I think that might be right. And the kid is like, no, I just want to be like, I forget what it is, like a you know Power Ranger, like something store-bought because his cousins are going to be that. I so identify with the parent who's thrusting the rustic homemade costume on the kid. Yes. <laughs> That's yep. been me. Yeah, exactly. And then and then she says, well, look, we're, you know, we're going to go trick-or-treating with the cousins and like they don't especially her sister, like, does not want Charlie along. So, like, you can take him afterwards. And he's like, well, there's no, there aren't two, like, cycles of trick-or-treating. Like, it, you, know, you can't go back out at 8 o'clock or whatever. So That's also up, just another anti-LA poke, right, that they have to be driving around in the dark. Right, and he eventually ends up, like, kind of, the kid ends up walking into, like, a liquor store and, like, they give him, like, a lollipop behind the counter at, like, 8 8.30 or something like that. Uh, but, yeah, but it's this total failure. They just end up, like, in, in Adam Driver's hotel room, like, not doing anything. It's one of those, like, you can picture the kid, like, talking to the therapist about the worst Halloween they ever had later in life. Um, but, yeah, flash forward a year, and they are this more, I guess they're not exactly, like, a blended family, but they're sort of, you know, more reconciled larger unit of, uh, you know, ex-husband and ex-wife, you know, boyfriend, son, um, you know, mother and and sister, all kind of working in some sort of new equilibrium that maybe isn't totally established, but at least is gelling into something workable. And if I remember right, that that shoelace tying moment you talked about is really the last gesture between them of the movie, right? I mean, she ties his shoe, she sends him off with the kid. And uh, oh, and she also cedes custody to him, right? I mean, that's a symbolically important moment. Right, not, it's not it's, cedes permanent custody, but just says it's my weekend. But go ahead and take him. Yeah, you go ahead and take him home. Like he's tired. It's my night. But you go, you take him home, and we'll just go out to you know have dinner and meet you later. And it's you know now that they've been extricated from the sort of litigious process of like settling the divorce, they can 
you know, actually kind of give and take like human beings a little bit more. Right. I, I also remember, I don't remember a lot of camera movements in this movie because like I say, it's a pretty straightforwardly told movie. I mean, you could critique it for being too conventional or almost TV movie-ish and it's just framing of scenes. Yeah. But I do love at the end the way the camera sort of pulls up in a way and frames them in a landscape, right? I mean, it's been a movie of a lot of close-ups and two shots and intimate indoor scenes and it ends at this moment outside, just on a suburban street where the trick-or-treat handoff happens. But the way the camera kind of moves on a crane up and away gives you a sense that you're, their world is expanding and that our world is expanding, too. Right. I mean, I saw this movie twice in some you know very beautiful uh, movie theaters, and I'm glad that I did. But it's also not one that like breaks my heart to think of people watching at home on Netflix. Like, I think it'll do, as long as you know, sit down and, and watch it at, you know, in two hours and don't me to do it in 10 minute chunks over your commute um i think it'll it'll work just fine in that environment one last thing before we sign off on marriage story what do you think of its uh its oscar chances and we just this morning came from the new york film critics circle meeting where the only thing that marriage story got somewhat to my surprise is that laura duran got a best supporting actress award which was sort of partly for this and partly for uh, little women like kind of an umbrella award over both i had thought that this movie which is very crowd pleasing i mean the crowd loved it when i saw it that it would maybe sweep a little bit more of our awards. But do you think in the season in general it'll do well? I mean, I from what I know, and I I am far from the world's best Oscar predictor, but I do, you know, I, I know some people who are much better at it than I do. And they are generally, you know, agreeing that Laura Dern is, you know, probably the favorite for supporting actress at this point. That obviously doesn't mean she's going to win, but she's a, you know, very strong contender for that. And it is a sort of, more kind of intimate chamber drama-y thing that the Academy has mostly favored in the recent years. They oddly have not been sort of going for the big, you know, four quadrant hundreds of millions of dollar movie kind of movie. You know, they don't, they're not going for like huge box office successes um, for the most part. So I think this kind of fits that, that profile as well. I mean, the Academy has become substantially more diverse over the last um, several years. They've added, you know, a ton of new members, um, this is, there's no getting around an extremely white movie. Um, you know, but then again, Green Book won last year. So that's not doom a movie's Oscar chances at this point still. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see how it does. Cause it's one of those movies that you could imagine doing well in almost any category, but maybe as we were saying earlier, it's not quite cinematic enough or, or innovative enough that it's going to really grab anyone's attention in any one particular area. Right. I mean, if I had to totally spitball, I mean, I think, you know, it probably stands a, like a stronger chance in screenplay than it does in something like um, director or best picture. I mean, it's both an extremely well-written movie and an extremely like clearly written movie like it's just you can very clearly see how the virtues of it come from the writing uh it's not something that feels like oh well they probably just you know made that scene up on the fly i mean the scenes feel even though apparently like laura dern's one of her big monologues was kind of at least built out of, of an improv you know it feels like a very kind of clearly concisely you know precisely written movie and i think that's um you know that would be a sensible place to recognize it All right. Well, I'm curious to see how it does now that we're heading into award season. Sam, thanks so much for coming in to Spoil Marriage Story with me. Thank you, Dana. Our engineer today was Merritt Jacob. Our producer was Rosemary Belson. If you have ideas about other movies or TV shows that you would like us to spoil, you can always drop us a line at spoilers at slate.com. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with another movie or show to spoil. For Samuel Adams, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you soon. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.